G'day you mob, welcome to this episode of The Goss, where I sit down with my dad every single week and talk about the news and current affairs going on in Australia, but also more broadly, across the face of this planet. (laughs) So, today we talk a whole bunch about all sorts of different topics. Obviously, we we keep talking about the coronavirus and give you a bit of an update on that and uh, fights that have been breaking out in Woolworths across Australia over toilet paper. We talk about how dogs are being used to sniff out cane toads that are invading bushland that was burnt in the bushfires. We talk about Australia's very first poo bank, right? Get this. You can now be paid $25 to poo for medical purposes. So, you'll have to listen to find out more about that. We talk about Cockneys announcing Miley Cyrus as the official rhyming slang for coronavirus. We also talk about scientists and how they're tracking funnel-web spiders using these minute little trackers. And lastly, we chat about a loggerhead turtle and how on earth it ended up coming back to Australia from South Africa after living there for decades in captivity. This is an absolutely awesome episode, guys. It is chock-a-block full of content. And don't forget, if you would like to get the transcript for this full episode, if you'd like to use the premium podcast player whilst you're listening to this episode to read everything that's said, and if you'd like all the other downloads and the rest of the video for this episode, make sure that you either sign up for the premium podcast membership or academy membership where you'll get access to both of those. Anyway, Anyway, guys, poke that kookaburra and let's get going. Dad, welcome to the 11th installment. 11th installment, yeah. <laughs> of the past double figures. We've done well, yeah. Oh, and we've it. managed to do this every week. I can't believe it. In fact, well, I think we've been, this is the 11th episode in 10 weeks. So Yeah, we possibly. Did we did a double one, week, one didn't yeah. we? So, how's your week been? Busy. What's yeah, the goss? Busy. Um, I, I've just come back, hence the all hot and sweaty. I've just come back from a uh, salt marsh walk uh, with a botanist, uh, part of the uh, Festival of the Sea at Barwon Heads, which is an annual festival they have of you know, celebrating being on the ocean, yep. but also the estuary there. So uh, they ran a workshop this morning, which is just looking at uh, Ramsar wetlands, which was a you know, convention from the 1970s, an international convention from the 1970s to preserve uh, wetlands, particularly for migratory wading birds. Yep. Um, and as part of that, um, then salt marsh areas which are the sort of borders of those are obviously going to be protected or uh, at least hopefully preserved as well so we were looking at a bunch of salt marsh plants which is always interesting because it's being an intertidal marine biologist i've spent my life looking at rocky shores but uh, it's the same principles but suddenly you've got mud and plants but that was what today was so what do you find so interesting about uh wading birds why are they such a popular bird for bird photographers um i think there's a couple of reasons one is that they're bloody hard to distinguish, to tell apart. Yeah, we've got, you know, loosely speaking, depending on how you define wading birds, but loosely speaking, there's 50-something species in Australia. 35 or 36 of them, I think, are migratory in that they come from, they breed in other parts of the world, one species in New Zealand and the rest of them from the deep northern hemisphere, so Alaska, Siberia. Um, That's such a weird thing, isn't it, that the distribution is kind of 
two pockets. Yeah, right? they do the summer planet. and summer, basically. Yeah, yeah. but that they don't have a continuous distribution where, you know, they're obviously going to fly from somewhere like Alaska to Australia, but they're not really stopping in any other locations for a significant amount no, of time. No, they, they right? basically stop to feed for yeah. a few days and then yeah. go to another place. Some of them just fly. There's one species, the bar-tailed godwit, which has been um, using uh, radio and satellite tracking technology uh, they've tracked a few of them that will fly from Alaska to New Zealand in one stop, just how, one hop. How do they manage that? Uh, well, because they, they're, t- they're so tiny, aren't they? As well, well, the gonwits are reasonably birds. large birds, but some of them are tiny. Uh, yeah, the smallest but they're not one. pelicans, right? You no, would imagine, you no, know, you exactly. think of animals mm. in the ocean that go large distances, and they don't tend to be anchovies. They no, tend to be exactly. things like whales, yeah. right? That have huge yeah. fat stores. Exactly. That can and so some of them, uh, like redneck stints, which are the smallest species, migratory yeah. species that come to Australia. Uh, they weigh, um, by the time they get here, they're weighing under 25 grams. So they're the oh. size of a sparrow. They're a little bit bigger than a sparrow, but they're lighter than a sparrow. That's an ounce, yeah. right? Like, so yeah. if you had an ounce yeah. of gold in your hand, yeah. which is, you know, a tiny little that's thing, right. that's the weight of the bird. Yeah, exactly. It's Jesus. five teaspoonfuls of water. <laughs> <laughs> what did they leave? So, what were they when they left? Um, uh, they can put on 70 to 80% of their body weight yeah. before leaving. So, they breed in the tundra, basically, yeah. um, in Alaska and Siberia. Um, and they can put on about 70 or 80% of body weight before they fly over here. And they'll lose most of that coming here. Do they, are they flapping like crazy when they make these things? Or do they well, get they into to. wind these currents are, well, and they, they just uh, Apparently, they fly from you know, 3,000 to 8,000 metres high. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. they're not up in a jet stream, yeah. uh, which you know, airplanes tend to fly in. But, well, they'd probably um, suffocate and freeze, they, right? They would, yeah, they'd freeze <laughs> and they simply wouldn't have enough oxygen there. But yeah. 8,000 metres is fairly high. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, so, you got a warning. you got a while to fall before you crash into the ocean. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do, yes. Um, you can take a rest for a few kilometres. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can just you yeah. can come back up. But, yeah, they're little flapping birds. The bigger yeah. ones can glide uh, a fair way. I, was, but, I just yeah. find it astonishing that they can travel such large distances in the air because mm. you would imagine that requires so much more energy than doing it in the ocean or on by land. I know. I know. It's sort of one of those things. Where if you think of it this way, they fly at about 60 kilometres an hour. Yeah. And if you were to get in your car and drive at normal suburban speed, 50 to 60 kilometres an hour, and think, I've got to drive 10,000 kilometres mm-hmm. at this speed, non-stop, yeah, or maybe two stops for a yeah. little feeding refuel in uh, around the Yellow Sea, um, so Korea and China. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's uh, but that's why they're so interesting because that's, they're, well, firstly they're interesting because they're they're migratory. So the fact yeah. that they're not here all the time, yeah. So they're only here over our summer, um, and well from spring until you know early autumn, um, and then because they're um, they all look the same mostly, you know, other than size differences, they're all little brown mottled birds with a few odd differences because by the time they get here, they're no longer in breeding plumage. Their yeah. breeding plumage is easy, much easier to distinguish them. But by the time they get here, they've molted and they're no longer in uh, breeding plumage. So um, it's just a bit of a challenge to identify them. And look, I think the other thing, certainly for me, I can't speak for all photographers, but just being down on mudflats and sandy beaches and things, it's a nice place to be. It's a fairly pleasant place to they be. They tend so. to congregate in areas too where you have a lot of different species that you can photograph simultaneously, yeah, right? So it isn't just you in the forest and there's a yeah, liar bird and exactly. nothing else. And you so, might or might not see it. Yeah, these things there's tend birds, to be and they're aggregating. in hundreds or thousands. Yeah. yeah. So that in itself is entertaining to look at as well. 
I guess the main reason I wanted to flesh this out a bit to learn about how they migrate is because I want to know more about how they do that because I have a story later on that we'll get into about mm. um, turtles and their migration, large distances. But how do these guys migrate such big difference, uh, distances? Are they using um, land marks as signals? Are they just, you know, are they using the sun or the moon in order to use celestial or um, what would you call it? Yeah, celestial yeah. navigation or are they doing it with the magnetic, um, what is it called? The magnetic, the magnetic field of the field earth. Field of the earth, yeah. yeah. I think at the moment, my understanding- Or do the, we not know? My understanding of the science <laughs> is that those are all um, legitimate hypotheses, yeah. none of which has ever been proven. Yeah. Um, so, it's a bit of a black box as to working it out. Um, because there are all of those are possible except for a couple of species like the um, some of the bartail godwits that will fly just directly across the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. So they're obviously not using landmarks as such. Um, <laughs> the water. Yeah. Let's aim for Tahiti. <laughs> Go know, for the next wave. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, but yeah, it could well be any of those things. And so we're no, I don't think anybody is really sure. Yeah, you wonder how you work that out too, right? Yeah. You would have to somehow maybe equip them with with an instrument that would disrupt something like magnetic waves, which I don't know how you would get ethics to do. Uh, no, no. And then no. see, do they maintain their course? Can they find their way if you could put on some kind of mm. electromagnetic disruptor on their head? And there you would have sort of indirect evidence that, okay, well, they're clearly using these Yeah, and I think waves. it's- look- when you're doing that sort of gross migration where you're, you're traveling huge distances, you're basically traveling from, you know, polar region in the north to, you know, sort of lower temperate zones uh, in the yeah. south, the southern hemisphere. Um, basically you just head north. Yeah. Or you head south. And then, so you, it, it doesn't mean that you have to track along exactly a route. You're not trying to follow a particular route. You're just yeah. saying head south. And then there'll be various correction mechanisms, whatever they are, to, uh, to get you to the spots that you want. Some of the hardest parts of conserving these sorts of species that have such large distributions or even, you know, broken up distributions mm. across multiple countries or even continents is that you need to have all of this um, discontinuous habitat kind of can serve to maintain them, right? Because if they're coming from somewhere like Russia through Southeast Asia into Australia, yeah. you need all the places they stop too to mm. be um, conserved because if one of those fails and they land there one year, the whole species yeah, could go Yeah, well, kaput. and that's certainly happening in- It's the- the group that we have coming here, because yeah. um, there's various flight paths around the world of birds migrating large distances, but the East Asia, Australasia flight path, which basically goes from that sort of Bering Sea with Alaska and um, and Russia through Siberia, China, Mongolia, down that coast through Southeast Asia into Australia, yeah. there are 21 countries <laughs> that the birds are potentially going to fly through and land on. And- China and South Korea have um, had a lot of urban development going on around uh, the seashores mm. uh, for a long time and reclaiming mudflats because yeah. historically people look at mudflats and you know salt marshes and those things and go oh this is just useless yeah. and so we'll you know we can fill it know, in fill it in put concrete there so it it certainly can happen where birds will go from one year to the next and they'll stop at mudflats on one time mm. then come back the next year and they land on concrete yeah. And so if they're exhausted and they're starving, they're dead. They're dead. They can't go on any further. So uh, there's some really interesting work going on um, in China and South Korea uh, at looking at creating large floating 
uh, feeding habitat for them. Yeah. Um, so that if we if we're going to have humans that are actually taking over the shore, they can effectively create an artificial mudflat uh, that's floating on the ocean. Really? Um, yeah. Wouldn't it get yeah. disrupted by waves? Or well, anything it like might. That, or it yeah. may. But the thing is, if you're doing it in um, in areas with mudflats, yeah. then they're low energy areas in yeah, terms okay. of waves. Um, so it's not like you're going to put it out on a surf beach. <laughs> <laughs> but and I I only yeah. just heard about it, so I haven't seen how much work it's good has been that done. On at it, least they keep keeping that in mind, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess the other thing to mention here before we get into the news was, remember that funny story I think I shared with you a while back on the eagles in uh, Siberia? Um, so, I think there was a Russian team there who was studying these big-ass, huge eagles, mm. and they put um, SMS trackers on them that would send uh, messages via the phone line- That's right. ...to yes. tell <laughs> the researchers where these birds were, and I think the- thing that blew their minds was that they started researching them wherever it was in Siberia. I can't remember if it was on Russian soil or Mongolia mm. or whatever, but they put all these trackers on something like 24 birds and the researchers went bankrupt yeah, because I think- International rates yeah, on their, the, their the, text They messages. had no yeah. idea how far thousands of kilometres individual birds were flying and yeah. their territory was massive. And I think the reason that they got charged so much money was that they went to Iran and as soon as they crossed the border, the um, cost of an SMS was like a dollar fifty, yeah. and they were getting messages every you know hour or something for weeks <laughs> at a time. <laughs> so they, lots of birds. They had yeah. to crowdsource um, money to pay for to the rest pay of the experiment. Bill. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that yeah. sort of story with species like that, where people you see them in a certain location and you imagine that they're just oh yeah, they live here mm. in this neighbourhood, and then they do that kind of research where they find out that the things travel thousands of kilometres yeah. or vice versa. I think they found a research, um, a study recently in Australia showed that feral cats have actually much smaller ranges than yeah. was previously expected. Yeah. There's where just they, lots of them. Yeah, they thought that they were transient across the landscape like nomads that right. would just go wherever and eat wherever. You know, maybe make a den when you're going to reproduce. But, you know, as you would probably expect with leopards or lions, they have a discrete Yes. territory that yeah. they stick to yeah. and that's you know important information with fighting feral species or conserving you know mm. endangered species yeah. that you're well look for about, things right? like cats they're they're highly specific in the way they uh, capture food yeah but they'll eat almost anything that they can get hold of yeah and so if they're in a you know, a forest area as an example they're going to get a lot of food without going very far yeah if they're out in farmland depending on, you know, rodents and reptile populations and those sort of things that they're likely to capture. Um, they may have smaller or larger uh, territories. Their territory is just going to be really, um, the, the size of it will be based on how much food they can get access to. Well, and it's pretty sad. I think we have anywhere between three to nine million cats that are mm. wild, that are feral, which is something like two to three times the number of pet cats. Yeah, and they each yeah. kill something like three animals a day. Yeah, and who, and knows, so, who knows how many foxes we have as yeah, well. Yeah, annually we're losing billions of animals. Like we think the bushfires cleared out a billion animals mm. as on estimates, but that's happening annually just from cats alone. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, getting onto the news, I guess yes. I've got a few things here. Before we get into the deeper stories, Harvey Weinstein has been convicted and got 23, 23 years in jail. Years, and he says he's been unfairly dealt with. Like, seriously, Harvey. <laughs> do you, do you um. find it amusing that both um, Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby suddenly became disabled when they had to go to court? 
Oh well, they're not the only charges. ones. There's um, <laughs> there, there are several examples of those. They they pull it. I'm too sick to go to court, and yeah. then they end up in court, and they still keep up the sick act. Is it like, well, do you think this is going to affect people's decisions whether I you're guess guilty or not? It's not going to hurt, right? No. I'm blind, no. you know. So Bill Cosby showed up with a cane, I think, saying suggesting he was blind, looking uh, for the sympathy sympathy oh, card, no. and mm. and Weinstein had a, a frame all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that he'd never been seen with outside of prison. <laughs> Yeah, so good riddance. Enjoy your stay in uh, jail there. Yeah, well, Harvey. he's not going to be coming out. Well, not until he's 90. Yeah. <laughs> um, COVID-9, so the coronavirus, you yeah, know. The weekly s- update on Jesus, coronavirus. Jesus Christ, I'm looking forward to this not being in the news anymore. Just stay away from Tom Hanks. All yeah. of this, Tom. Hope you well, get well soon. So, Tom Hanks has got it and he and his wife both were tested positive for it on the Gold Coast in Australia. And who, the World Health Organization, just declared it as a global pandemic. And um, another article I just saw before was that a coronavirus conference has been cancelled because of the coronavirus. Yeah. How <laughs> ironic is that? Yeah. <laughs> um, and the toilet paper stuff. Did you see the fight that was going oh, on yeah. in the- uh, It was a Western Sydney Woolworths Sydney, between yeah. three ladies. Yeah. So, it's been going crazy. Even here, like, it was funny because we saw the memes going everywhere on, on the news and on social media and you think, oh, it's just a few places. And then all of a sudden, we went to the supermarket here and yeah. I was so embarrassed because I I was like, well, I better buy Do some I walk before down it's the gone. toilet paper aisle. Yeah. <laughs> and it was saying one one thing only, one packet of toilet paper only yeah. per, per person. Oh, and right. the same with hand sanitizer, flour. Well, hand sanitizer in one of our local supermarkets now, if they have it, they'll have it at the service desk. So, you have to go uh, and ask for it. So, they'll yeah. give it to you. You won't be able to go and take it, take it off the shelves. It's interesting so. that they care. You would imagine that the stores would just be like, whatever, we'll sell yeah. more of it. You know? Yeah. Well, the thing is they won't sell more. Um, because, It'll just keep getting taken out. Yeah, and- because they'll just sell what they've got. Yeah. And they mostly they'll be on a the sort of I think there's two ways that supermarket shelves tend to get filled. One is that there's a sort of an, an automated inventory that is done by, you know, the barcodes as they're going through the tills that the shop will know that they've got, you know, a hundred of these in stock. A uh, hundred of them out the back of the shop that they can restock the shelves with, and once they sell a hundred out of that two hundred, it'll automatically reorder some. Yeah. Uh, but if everybody else is reordering them, you can't get them anyway. So you might as well hold on to them and sell them and and do the the sort of the public good thing yeah. of saying yeah because in the end it's in their interest because you don't want those scenes like in that you know Woolworths um, in Sydney where, yeah, where these people were fighting got, and tearing got, each other's you know, hair three out. three people you know grabbing each other fighting tearing each other's hair out and look to be to be reasonable um, I think the woman who started the fight. Had a case. I don't think she where, started it though, because it looks like the other two well, women she, were. She started the interaction. Yes, there were two she, women who had a trolley that was literally overloaded, and the and the yeah. the big packets of toilet paper were falling out of the trolley onto the floor. <laughs> and this woman said, "Yeah," and there was nothing left. They took yeah. everything that was on the shelf. Yeah, and there was nothing left there. So there's there's another woman came along and said, "Look, all I want is one," and she went to yeah. take one off the trolley. Yeah, and then she got attacked as you know, you're stealing our things. These are ours. It's yeah. one of those and, things where it's like. Yeah, Really? You're taking 20 packs. All yeah. I need is- I need one. I haven't got any. Uh, I need one. Why? I know. One, so. they were grabbing her and, you mm. know, they got done for assault, I think. They, were they did, in the end. got charged with assault. In the end, the um, the store staff had to pull them apart and call the police. Yeah. But, uh, but it's which like, is just bizarre. It's toilet paper, people. I know. Just yeah. get a bidet, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's the chance that you're actually going to run out of toilet paper? Yeah. Because the worst that's going to happen is that even if you get it, you're going to be quarantined for two weeks. Yeah. 
uh, you know, maybe three or four. How much does your average family, how much toilet paper does your average family need for it's a It's very month? bizarre. But- I don't know. I guess it's one of those things, those we covered before where you start seeing other people getting it and you freak out thinking that whether or not you get the mm. virus, you're not going to have any for the near yeah. future. And so you do it and it gets oh, yeah. worse and, and worse. Yeah, and the, worse. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the problem is that, you know, the few idiots who start the panic. Uh, they're the crazy ones. Everybody else has actually got- It's a reasonable <laughs> response to saying, I don't have any. Yeah. It's running out. I'm going to have to go and get some. Well, I felt so embarrassed <laughs> going to buy some this week because I, I was actually out of it and I needed some. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, I felt, don't don't look at me. No yeah. one judge don't, me. Don't I, judge I, me. I've just, I've just got one. Yeah, yeah. I just actually one need toilet pack- paper. I oh, know. So, there was that. Um, there was a- I, Well, actually, let's let's stay on that topic for a bit. So, it seems like the mortality rate is about 3%, yeah. but you need to break that down into age groups and, I guess, health-wise, right? Mm-hmm. So, it seems like very young people aren't- Like, young children are, are not dying from it. No. People my age are probably getting sick but aren't dying from it. Mm-hmm. And then there's your generation and the generation beyond you yes. that are the more susceptible. Yeah. And particularly people who've got respiratory problems, it seems to be. Yeah. The, because it's a respiratory thing, it just seems to hit- the respiratory system and if you're already uh got a problem then yeah. it seems obviously it's going to make it worse so how are they dying is it just that they're getting things like pneumonia, pneumonia. and then their yeah. organs just yeah. shut down getting pneumonia and yeah you know, it's a lot of these things pneumonia is probably the biggest killer in the world yeah <laughs> but it's a secondary thing it's not the original infection was you it get- your dad or grandfather that my, had that oh, my gra- oh, yeah, my grandfather <laughs> used to uh, say all the time, you only ever die of one thing, and that's shortness of breath. <laughs> and the irony is he died of pneumonia, which meant he died of not being able to breathe. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. So, are you worried about coronavirus? Is it starting to become more well, and more of a fear for you personally? Yeah, or I don't know. Do you think, it's, nah. it's sort of- There's a concern, but I don't know that it's got to worry. It certainly hasn't got to fear yet because- yeah. Well, firstly, it's sort of inevitable. Yeah. Uh, it is a pandemic. Um, but, you know, if you look at the other side of those figures- but the flu I, I is a pandemic. Today, right? Yeah. The flu is a pandemic. It's just a pandemic that we just accept and we yeah. live with. So, the, it's I think stable, figures right? It's everywhere worldwide, um, the week, I think it was the week before last, worldwide, somewhere between 50 and 60 people died of coronavirus. Yeah. A thousand people died of influenza. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the bigger killer. Well, it's, yeah, it's, that's, um, that's on like a weekly or something basis, yeah. right? Something crazy. Yeah. yeah I so. know. So, uh, yeah, a thousand people a week die of influenza around yeah. the world. And, and yet, yeah, but we have a vaccine for that. So people can choose and we typically get new vaccines every year. People can choose to try and prevent that from happening. At the yeah. moment, I think the fear with a new virus that comes up is that there's nothing we can do about it. You know, you can, yes, you can, you know, wash your hands, do all of those preventative things, but, if it's around, there's a chance you're going to catch it. Well, I was watching so. a documentary recently on pandemics and it's sort of following people working on the front line to deal with pandemics, but also the flu during flu season and everything, mm. especially in the US. And there was a, a small company now that's trying to work on a universal flu vaccine that's just a one-time yes. shot. And it's really cool because what they've done is they've taken, I think, all the flu viruses from- present all the way back to something like 1912 and crammed them all into a single vaccine and given it to pigs, but they have to give them seven shots right. before it starts before showing. It up the- yeah, but then after that, they pretty yeah. much don't get sick. But the, their issue is no one wants seven shots. And so, that yeah, at the moment- take a series of seven yeah, shots. Yeah, well, Presumably that's what they're working one every on. couple of weeks for a period. I don't know, uh, but- To give your body time to kick in and then have another go and have another go. Because yeah. if you just went there and had seven injections in a row, it would be like just taking seven times as much. Well, so, no, it was a, a period- 
periodic yeah, thing. Yeah, they take so, a yeah. series. So. But it was interesting to see that people are working on that, at least, a holistic, mm. universal look, approach to dealing <coughs> with flu. Yeah, I, this is an example of how much I care. I'm drinking straight out of a bottle that I've just bought yeah. from a shop. So, I don't know whether this was handled well or not mm. <laughs> in the shop. Yes, I'm drinking from the cap that it was taken off, but, you know, putting things in your mouth, you don't know where they've been. Yeah, so, I was looking at it too. There was an article that was um, someone shared. In fact, I think it was our, my brother-in-law's parents who shared it on Facebook about stop saying that only elderly people are dying mm. from it because, you know, everyone knows elderly people. And how do you think they feel? And it's yes. it's significant. Yeah. And, and I didn't realise when I was reading that article, I didn't realise it's something like almost 15% chance of dying if you contract it, which is what, one in six yeah. chance. So, if both my grandparents, Nan and Grandpa, who are still alive, get it, there's a third of a chance one of them one will of them. die. Yes. So, yeah, is that aspect of it frightening? Well, it is. And, yeah, obviously, there are always going to be people who are vulnerable, but this is a a cohort of people that is age-based. It's not, you know, if you've had pneumonia before, you're more likely to be, you know, to suffer from it. So, there's a, you know, there are a large number of people that we all know who we would fit into elderly, and obviously I'm falling over the edge into that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm cardiorespiratorily uh, impaired. So, you know, there's that element too. But what can you do? In the end, you just try and, you know, do the normal, you know, safe practices of wash your hands, don't stick your hands in your mouth or your eyes or <laughs> so. And so, what's the Australian government doing at the moment with it? They've We've had our first case in the ACT. So, I think now, as of today, every single state, state and territory, and territory of Australia has something. the coronavirus. Yeah. And the government's um, pledged $15 billion or something yeah. in one way or another to fight Yeah, and I haven't seen issue. the breakdown of what that's going to look like Well, yet. it looks like they're spending $2.4 billion dollars on a hundred coronavirus fever clinics, as well as a new Medicare item, which mm. is remote health advice, I think that you can call up. But yeah, do you think this is going to go quickly? Do you think it'll pass eventually? Or it's it'll pass. Be in the news well, it won't disappear. Um, there will always be people who will get this now. Yeah. Um, because the virus is out there. Uh, we're not going to eradicate it. Uh, but. How long it takes to pass is going to be an interesting challenge. It's clearly it is not a seasonal one. And that's yeah. the thing with influenza. Influenza is a winter disease. You, know, you don't catch the flu in summer, uh, which is sort of weird when you think about the, you know, the sort of medical physiology of that. Clearly in winter, we tend to get a cold. Um, we tend to be uh, more likely to be just a little bit off. <laughs> Health-wise, and so I think you're more likely to uh, to get a um, a flu. I wonder uh, if that's why it. we call it the cold. Yeah, maybe it is. <clears throat> yeah, a cold disease. It's mm. a disease I get when I'm cold. G'day, mate. That was the first half of this episode of the Goss. If you would like to continue watching or continue listening to this episode, make sure that you sign up for the premium podcast or academy memberships at aussieenglish.com.au where you will get full access to these entire episodes of this series and much, much more. You can go check that out using the links below or just go to aussieenglish.com.au. Once again, thank you so much for joining me, mate, and I will see you next time. Peace.